blessed to have such amazing musicians yeah. and singers. Yeah. Yeah. Looking forward to worshipping some more later on. Well, we're doing the series, it's called Rebuilding, and it's. Um, I'm not sure I was busy saying what Muslim musicians and singers <laughs> So we're doing our series and it is set in a city called Susa at this point, which is in modern day Iran. Back in the day it was known as Persia. And uh, I want to just summarize some of what's gone on in chapter one. We don't have to go over it all again, but here are the highlights. Uh, this man here, Mai, is cupbearer to the king. Uh, he was probably the most important person in the world. King Xerxes, he was a ruler of the Persian Empire, which was a pretty big em empire. Uh, he had a great job, Nehemiah, and a great life, but he was still concerned about what was going on in the world around him. He's concerned about God's kingdom as well. He wants to know how God's people and how's the mission succeeding. When he finds out that things are going badly, his heart is moved, he, he starts to pray, he weeps, he lands up confessing his sins and the sins of the community of which he is a part. And Nehemiah is now ready for God to use him. And this whole process of finding out how things are going and, and seeking God probably lasts about four months. And then in chapter two, God starts to work. One day he's doing his job. He hasn't said anything to anyone yet. And his boss says to him, why are you looking so sad? And he's, he's able to say, it's not a sadness of heart. And he explains, well, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? Its gates have been destroyed by fire. So God works as a result of Nehemiah's prayers, his seeking of God, and now God is giving him a gap. Nehemiah charges right in there. And he says, I prayed, it was a quick prayer before he answered the question a second later. And, and he, he asks the king, send me to the city of Jerusalem. That's the thing that's going to make me happy. I want to go and rebuild it, verse 5. And then the king says with the queen right there, how long is it going to take? What can I do to help? And in fact, Nehemiah is so bold, he asks for safe conduct. And he asks for timber to be able to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, starting with the walls. So, so it's an amazing story. We're going to look at verses 9 onwards today. But the last verse that, that Tom touched on last week was verse 8 in his section. And verse 8 says this, and I want to read it again because I feel it's a potent verse. It says this, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. This is an important verse. It's a summary verse of everything that's happened up until this point. What does it mean when he says the gracious hand of God was upon me? It's, it's a picture of a parent with, with their, their hand on the shoulder of a child 
kind of directing the child in the direction they need to go. In the Old Testament, this phrase, the hand of my God is upon me, it speaks of two things. It speaks of the power of God and it speaks of the providence of God. You know, we talk about the unseen hand of God. That's what it means when we say God's hand was upon me. Nehemiah even uses the adjective, the gracious hand of my God was on me. Here are some other places in the Old Testament where this phrase is used. Ezekiel 37.1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he begins to prophesy. Ezra uses this phrase a lot of the time. He says, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. This and this happened. Ezra 7.9, the good hand of his God was on him. Ezra 8.18, according to the good hand of our God. The question I want to ask us all tonight is, do you sense God's gracious hand upon your life? That's a very different question to, is everything going well in your life? Because the gracious hand of God can be upon you no matter what you're going through in your life. And I hope you do live your life with the sense that God's hand is upon you. Because if you're a Christian, you are a child of God. And His promise is never to leave you or to forsake you. And His promise is that He wants to guide your life and show you the way to go. It took Nehemiah, as I mentioned earlier, four months to get to this place where he's ready to go to Jerusalem to do something about the problem that previously he'd felt so passionate about. And at this point, he's received three things from the king, his boss. He's received the go-ahead to go and rebuild the city. He's received safe passage. And he's received access to resources. And if you've ever done anything for God or been on a mission trip, you'll know that this is staggering. To, to be given leave to go and do whatever it is that you want to do for God. I mean, that's the first miracle right there. I mean, was there a, an assistant deputy cupbearer? We, we don't know. To be given safe passage, to have a military escort when, when you're on a mission for God, that, that's a pretty amazing thing. And to be given access to resources. The, the, the king's best timber forest, to be able to go in there and get all that you need. And the question I want us to, to ask, and then I'm going to have a go at answering, is, is why did the king do all of this? Because you'll remember the previous king had done everything in his power to destroy Jerusalem. That's why he burnt everything to the ground and destroyed the temple, King Nebuchadnezzar. He besieged the place. He destroyed the place. And now you've got the next superpower, because the Persians conquered the Babylonians. Now you've got the Persians running the show. And, and instead of trying to destroy Jerusalem, they want to do everything they can now to build it up. And I think there are two explanations here. The first is that the Persians definitely had a different foreign policy. The Persians didn't do divide and conquer. Uh, that was the Babylonian style. They tried to sort of get everybody into exile and falter in and become a Babylonian, which of course never really works. Although I'm sure some people made a good go of it. 
But the Persians had a different foreign policy. They were quite happy for little people groups to be doing their own thing, as long as they still played by the rules. So that's one explanation of why King Xerxes was so willing to be helpful here. But there's another explanation, and that is that God had previously placed Esther into the city of Susa and brought her into the royal family as it were, brought her into the palace, and she was like an aunt uh, to the current king. She was probably, let me just check my notes so I get this right. Most scholars believe that Artaxerxes, that was Nehemiah's boss, was the son of Esther's husband, Xerxes. Okay, so actually part of the story of Nehemiah it ties into the story of Esther. And I want to just share the story of Esther with you very briefly, in case some of you don't know it. Esther was an absolute nobody. Okay, she did happen to be quite beautiful. Uh, and God worked in a way to get this nobody, a young Jewish girl, who became queen of the Persian Empire. Okay, so that's a foreign nation, and you go from, from zero to hero. And I just want to tell the story of how, how that happened. Well, it all started with a feminist called Vashti. <laughs> who was the current queen, king's wife. And uh, the king was throwing this back a little party and uh, wanted his wife to come out and entertain the guests with a bit of dancing, okay? Uh, but she sent a message, no, I'm absolutely not coming to dance in front of your pals. No way about that. So, so Zerbs, he's a bit upset now because he's told everybody she's coming, but now she won't come. Um, so, long story short, she fires uh, Vashti as queen, and that, now they have to look for a new queen. And so they have a beauty competition. And Esther, unfortunately, is a finalist in this compulsory beauty competition. And uh, it's for that reason that she's taken to the palace almost abducted, you could say. She's an orphan girl. This was not the kind of beauty competition you wanted to win. You know, I'm sure she tried to make herself look as ugly as possible. Um, but it didn't work. She did win it. She was taken <laughs> to the palace. And long story short, uh, the, the king likes her and, and she becomes the new queen. And it's a re result of Esther being moved by God into that position that I believe the king later on was willing to let Nehemiah go and, and rebuild the temple. I'm telling you the story because we often think that God only works in nice ways. You know, we think when everything works out perfectly according to our plan, we say, well, that is God at work. But life's really not like that. Uh, and you can see that in the story of Esther. We, we see that in the story of Joseph too, where uh, he says to his brothers, after they'd sold him into slavery, uh, faked his death, after he'd been falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison, terrible things happened to Joseph. But again, it's God at work, and he can say at the end of his life, when he is reconciled to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So think about your own life for a moment. 
How under the hand of God has He positioned you? What relationships has God brought into your life? Resources unto your disposal. Connections, opportunities that He set before you. This is definitely a key part of the message of Nehemiah. It's, it's having the eyes to be able to spot how God has been working in the background. Let's look at verse 10. When Sunballad the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Life lesson number two, if ever you set out to do something for God, there are going to be people that oppose you. And we need to brace ourselves for that. When you share with someone, gee, this is the vision that God's put in my heart to do, they're not all going to be saying, wow, that's fantastic. A lot of people are going to be disturbed by what you want to do. That's the case here. Nehemiah's come to build up Jerusalem. I mean, why should the people have been living in ruins for decades? But it seems they quite like it that way because now they're disturbed that someone has come to to promote the welfare of the Israelites. A little way down in our series, Shane's going to be preaching. He's going to deal more uh, in depth with, with the opposition we encounter when we do God's work. Why particularly are these guys up in arms? It's because of this phrase here. Nehemiah has come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. The Israelites are God's chosen people. And their success was wound up in the success of God's mission here on earth. There's tremendous opposition to the Jewish people today. The Labour Party in the United Kingdoms just had a massive hoo over it. Uh, the leader of the Palestinians, Abbas, has just this weekend been forced to apologize for a very anti-Semitic speech he made on Friday. Even the European Union spoke out about how terrible it was. If you go onto the campuses or, or read the paper, you will hear about the BDS campaign, which is probably the strongest campaign against any against any country in the world today. Surely campaigns about Tibet and there are campaigns about Taiwan and there's people opposing other human rights abuses, but there's nothing on the scale of opposition to Israel with BDS and their boycott, disinvest and sanction. <coughs> the United Nations has often been very anti-Israel. Between 2012 and 2015, the UN General Assembly adopted 97 re resolutions criticizing countries. Do you know how many of those 97 were critical of Israel, which is a very small country? I think they've only got about four and a half million, eight and a half million people that live there. But a full 85% of those 97 resolutions passed by the UN were actually against Israel in that time period. So much so that even Ban Ki-moon, the previous Secretary General of the United Nations, admitted there was a disproportionate focus on Israel. 
When people arrive and say they've come to seek the welfare of Israel, there's always spiritual opposition to that. And I believe we must never find ourselves on the wrong side of, of opposition to Israel. I think of the covenant God made with, with Abraham. We read about it in Genesis 12 verse 3 where there is a one-sided covenant. This is not the Mosaic covenant which God made with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. This is the covenant prior to that, the Abrahamic covenant, where God said to Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation, and I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. And we see some of this playing out on the world stage today. There's a spiritual opposition to Israel. Anyway, they come to seek the welfare of the Jewish people. Verse 11 says this, Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And the question I want to ask you again tonight, picking up on what Nehemiah says when he talks about what God had put in my heart to do. I want to ask you, what is God putting in your heart to do for Him? I hope you're not just a spectator in the mission of God. That you're not, not just someone that, that, that watches from a distance what everybody else is doing for God. What's God put in your heart to do for Him? And I believe all of us should, should have a desire within us to be doing stuff for God. And I love Philippians chapter 2 where we're told we need to work out our salvation. And then verse, verse 13 says this, for it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good pleasure. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. It's God at work within us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. If the Holy Spirit is free reign in us, we should find ourselves desiring to do things that bring God pleasure. But Nehemiah knows what he has in his heart. To do for God. Another thing I observe in this passage is that Nehemiah is very much alone at this stage. He stresses again and again in this passage, I didn't tell anybody about what God had put in my heart to do. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. And he goes about now, he's looking at Jerusalem, he's on horseback, and he's examining to see just how bad things really are. Not everything in life, friends, is a group activity. <laughs> Sometimes God's going to put something in your heart to do that only you understand and that you're going to have to do by yourself. And I've observed, and I think it's true of, of, of younger people particularly, that unless they feel there's a whole thing of support behind them. It's very difficult to move forward. 
Nehemiah is an example of a pioneer, somebody going it alone, not telling everybody else what he's going to do. There was nothing on Instagram, nothing on Facebook. He describes his journey in more detail. By night I went out through the valley gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down, and the gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or the nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. When God puts a burden on our hearts, this is the next step. It's, it's examining what's really going on. It's, it's before God gaining facts. Okay, this Lord is what you want me to do, but let me go and examine for myself what's going on. And he formulates a plan. And first he's able to describe the problem to the people. And he says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruin. I'm just reading the text really, but I've given it headings. Then there's a call to action. Come, let's rebuild the wall so we will no longer be in disgrace. And there's encouragement. I told them about the gracious hand of my God being upon me and all that the king had said and done. What a great leader Nehemiah is. He lays it all out for the people. This is the situation. These are the facts on the ground. I've done my homework. I don't just have a burden from God, but I've examined what's going on. And this is what we need to do. This is why we need to do it. So we'll no longer be in disgrace. And he ends with, and we can do it because God is with us. And I know he's going to give us success. Once again, the opposition starts up. This time, there's another fellow, Geshem, who gets involved. And they mock Nehemiah. And they ridicule him. And they say, what is this you are doing, they ask. Are you rebelling against the king? And once again, whenever we step out to do something new for God, there are going to be people there saying, but we like the way things are. Don't lock the boat. What are you doing? Why are you stirring things up? Are you rebelling against the king? And there's criticism again of Nehemiah. But he, he pushes through because he's got this conviction. And that's what happens when you spend four months in prayer. And he can answer his critics and say, The God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. The Jews' claim and historic right has also been questioned in recent years. But these are the facts of the situation. King David founded the city of Jerusalem in 1000 BC. That's that's more than 3,000 years ago. He called it the city of David. He paid money for it, for the place where they first built the altar. It's all recorded in the Old Testament. 
which is authenticated as being centuries old and centuries before Islam even began. It was David's son, Solomon, who, who commissions the building of the first temple. That temple mount we see today, that is the, the, the site where Solomon built this first incredible temple. Yet in 2016, UNESCO, who are based in, in Paris and who are a branch of the United Nations, voted a pastor resolution saying that the Jews had no historic connection with the Temple Mount. Can you believe it? They later were forced to rescind it. And you know, of course, South Africa always votes for these anti-Israel resolutions. I mean, we're, we're right in there. After the Babylonian captivity, it's to Jerusalem that people like Nehemiah want to, want to return, to rebuild it. At the time of Jesus, again, it was common knowledge that Jerusalem was the home of the Jewish people, this time occupied by Rome. And the modern state of Israel was, was only founded in 1948. And what many people don't understand is that at that time, the Palestinians were offered a state as well alongside the state of Israel. But they turned it down because they wanted everything. And there have been other occasions since then when the Palestinians could have had a state. I just share this with you because I find there's often a, a great ignorance when it comes to the, the historic right and claims of Israel. And we've seen what's happened when Trump said he wants to move the Israel, the, the American embassy to Jerusalem. But we need to understand these things as, as Christians and make sure we are those that bless and support Israel. As I close today, let me ask you six questions. Are you living with a sense of the gracious hand of God upon you? I hope that's not just a theoretical idea to you, but you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed and you say, it's wonderful to know, Father God, that your hand is upon me, that you're going to guide me through today. Whether you're Nehemiah with a beautiful job, sipping wine with the king, or you're Esther, or you're Joseph, do you see the significance of where God has placed you? The opportunities God's given your, your, to you, they haven't just come by coincidence. That can be God opening up opportunities for you. And how are we going to use those opportunities? Will you be wise in how you share the vision? I didn't go into that too much tonight. Will you brace yourself for opposition and criticism and conflict in the pursuit of what God has called you to do? Not everyone's going to be cheering you along. And will you commit yourself to believing that God is going to give you success? Let's pray together and we'll continue to worship. Lord, when we read the story of Nehemiah, we, we can't help but see how you paved the way, using Esther maybe to, to, to 
turn the heart of the king, to make him favorable to the Jewish people. And thank you for Nehemiah, Lord, that he was a man who had a good job, but yet he had a passion for, for the things of God and, and the mission of God in this world. May we be like that as well, not just content to do our jobs, but with eyes that scan the horizon for God-given opportunities. And we pray, Lord, that we would be sensitive to what you're putting in our hearts to do. And help us to see that our life has taken the course that it has taken, perhaps because you're at work and you're wanting to position us for the next big thing that you're working in the world. And like these people, we want to see ourselves too as your servants, Lord. Show us how we can use our relationships, our connections, our resources, our opportunities to further the kingdom of God, to leverage these things for your glory, Lord. Speak to us and show us what you want us to do. And Lord, we're not trying to rebuild the walls of a city, but we are trying to spread a kingdom and its influence. And we pray that you would make us all passionate in that endeavor. And we thank you that you will give us success, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to stand strong on our own two feet, uh, to know what the next step is for each one of us. And help us to be the very opposite of these critics. Help us to encourage those that are doing God's work. And may the momentum grow in this church, we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.